part two of this Transforming Society podcast with Rob Kitchen and Alistair Fraser, authors of Slow Computing. Having looked at the current state of the digital world in part one, in this part we look at practical ways in which we can create more balanced digital lives, both individually and collectively. So earlier you mentioned better ways of doing things, so having looked at where we are now, let's talk about slow computing as an alternative direction we can choose to take. Um, please, can you explain the concept of slow computing and outline the ways in which it's beneficial, could be beneficial? Um, the idea for slow computing sort of bounces off of other slows. So you might have slow food or in, in the academic world, you have things like slow scholarship. And in essence, what we would say is that these are slow food is a way of resisting mainstream practices of fast food. Slow scholarship is a way of trying to resist rapid publishing or the publisher perish mentalities which uh, uh, pervade the academy. And so what we've tried to do is suggest that slow computing can characterise the sort of efforts that many people undertake to, if you like, twist the web or twist digital tech and push it in a different direction. So it's an attempt to put a new name on widespread forms of resistance that argue, in a nutshell, that today's digital life isn't good enough, that the acceleration has gone too far and that the data extraction has gone too far. It's to suggest that we can have a different, a better web and a different and better overall experience when we're online and when we're using these devices. But a crucial point is that we don't think doing this on your own is ever going to be enough. Um, you know, we can point towards individual actions or practices and suggest they are forms of slow computing but often they inevitably draw on others, and we'd venture a guess that slow computing practices will end up working better when they are strongly tied to more collective actions. So in terms of benefits then, we think there are a few things to consider on an individual level. If a more balanced digital life emerges from pursuing something like slow computing, then there's more scope perhaps to feel happier about being online, less anxious about you know, using devices, um, or you know maybe less pressure to you might begin to have less pressure to respond to those chains of social relations. Maybe there's scope to have more balance or more control. Um, but the bigger benefit we think remains in the distance, and it will come eventually when we have a new web, a new form of digital life. And for me, that's when we're using more free or open source software to solve problems, and um, when we're not adding to the privatized data reserves. And and you know and the the the, the, the point here is that. Like data reserves on their own aren't necessarily bad. I mean, we can all think of situations, maybe such as health, uh, where more data can help society as a whole, maybe to try and track disease or understand how diseases work out in different types of bodies. But when these data reserves are privatised and used for short term and really quite pathetic purposes, like to sell ads, mm. um, the potential of the reserve is wasted. And I, and I think it's good to just think about the notion here of a reserve. It's like a grain reserve. Grain reserves to survive the winter, good idea, right? But not if they're controlled by a chief or a lord and used only for their benefit rather than the entire villages. Yeah. So not adding to these privatised data reserves, I think, is important. But it's also when we have things like platforms, social media platforms that are run like cooperatives rather than for billionaire tycoons. It's when we're not all dealing with WhatsApp hangovers in the morning or um, you know, tracking fatigue when we're online because we switch on our phones or go onto the web. Um, and so the, I think there's 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 scope for us to be using digital technologies in much more um, in a, in a fact more more astute ways that can actually produce a, that can help to produce a better society. 
slow computing is an option for people who have autonomy and the ability to switch off when they choose and that's often those on the wealthier side of the spectrum um, but many people maybe people on zero hours contracts or doing shift work have work communicated to them at short notice there's also a matter of neurodiversity to consider and the potential need for people to have the right to disconnect um, I think it's unlikely that big business will self-regulate. So do we need government regulation to make sure slow computing can be an option for everyone? Um, yeah, I, I think so. But I think we also have to recognise that it's not easy. Um, and the problem isn't just the way digital tech is used. Um, you know, we're not wanting to be myopic here. There, there are broader problems to recognise in society. You know, for example, take the case of trade unions. One thing I'd say is needed is for people in workplaces to be able to have their web activity made anonymous, for example, by using like a, a, a Tor browser, um, maybe on their working machines. And I'd like unions to be pushing for that. But what chance is there of that when so many people aren't unionized? You know, the problem isn't the tech, but the wider society okay. that works against organized yeah. labor in this case. Right? Yeah. Um, and so if we imagine a society where the government really does work for the people and not for big business, we now have the problem that regulation of a fast-moving set of technologies is incredibly tricky, uh, and it does pose questions about what sort of policy process we we need. So a policy process that we need that can regulate these technologies at a fast enough pace, in some instances, right, that doesn't also at the same time strip away some of the power of these technologies. Um, but again, that's not easy. Um, the, the question is how do we how do we create policy process that can stand up to um, the forms of surveillance or you know prevent the forms of surveillance taking place in the first place um you know the the, the gdpr the eu regulation and gdpr is maybe a way to try and imagine how something like that can be done better but yeah. um you know w w I, don't, I don't think in, in in our minds we're we're wanting to ignore the the sort of complexities that these tech companies are taking on um and and the, the trickiness of making it possible for legislators to get inside of those tech companies to understand what's good for us or not. Um, and I, I, I don't have answers to that question about how to create that policy process, but I think policymakers need to be finding answers to it. Um, and the tech companies say, Lacey, fair is best, leave us alone, let mm -hmm. us go on with it. Um, and I think the, the evidence is, is that we can't trust them on that. Um, but at the same time, we can't ignore the complexities that they're actually dealing with in the first place. If you like, it's the unknown unknowns um, and that's getting played out on an ongoing basis within the tech scene. It's this very, very tricky balance that, that, that nobody really has an answer to yet, but we're, we're, we're certainly hoping that, that that answer may be found soon. Yeah, yeah. I, think, I think we have to recognise that, that collectively we do this on different levels. So there are a number of different um, ways that we as individuals can work uh, more collectively so that can be done at a community level um, through um, uh, kind of uh, working on civic tech projects or hackathons or whatever it might be, some form of data activism, developing open source alternatives and so on. Mm. So that, that, that can be done by workers and by unions. So me as a worker with inside my university can push back against management and say, I don't think this is a good idea and collectively mobilize work colleagues uh, and there's been a little bit of that going on inside of companies like Facebook and Google with workers actually saying, look, we're not happy with the way in which the company is going and the products we're developing. And we think we should think about this differently. Mm. Uh, unions also pushing back as organized.
Um, there's things that companies can do as well. So some companies do see things like privacy as a competitive advantage, and they do see things like the right to disconnect as something that benefits them because it makes their workers less stressed and more uh, productive. And they might adopt things like privacy by design and so on as a strategic uh, way of trying to gain a um, more place in the marketplace. Uh, there's a whole rake of different non-governmental organizations who organize around um, uh, these kind of civil liberty issues related to digital tech. Uh, and on one hand, they're kind of lobbying and political campaigning. And on the other hand, they might be actually creating tools, so creating privacy enhancement tools, creating uh, open source alternatives, uh, and so on. There's political parties, so political parties have different ideologies and have different views around what they what they think would be a benefit to society. And some of them will, will create policy proposals or could create policy proposals around this. And we as members of society are often members of political parties, and so we can campaign and lobby inside those organizations to uh, push them in the direction that we think they want to go. And then there's a whole series of public bodies um, and government agencies and state agencies and so on that can that look to set agendas and create new regulations and laws and implement new initiatives and set out governance and oversight uh, and so on. And again, as individuals, lots of us work in those kinds of places or sit on their advisory boards or uh, can uh, lobby them uh, and so on and to get them, you know, in, in theory, those are the kinds of bodies that are meant to express civic paternalism and stewardship, right? They're meant to act on behalf of society. So we can kind of get them to try and push back against, against some of the some of the excesses around uh, what's happening with um, and the kind of uh, fragmentation of time and the stresses and anxiety around always being rushed or or on the data extraction and how uh, data is being kind of pulled out of us and then used to profile us and nudge us and change our behavior and governance and, and so on. There's actually quite a few spaces where change is possible then, isn't there? Um, how would you respond to people who... Sorry. I yeah, I think it's really important to stress that this is not just about the individual. Yeah. Like our computing is not just about me trying to manage my data or manage my time. It's also about a kind of societal response, a collective response to try and make society in a way that we feel is fairer, um, maybe more transparent, more accountable, more notions of participation, um, more notions of democracy and so on. So it's, it's, it works at both the individual and the collective level. And I think that's the important thing. A lot of the kind of self-help books around things like digital detox and so on, they really do just focus on the individual scale. Yeah, we're kind of trying to say, look, this is this is broader than this and that there are lots of ways that we can do it. So what we're trying to do is set out a whole series of uh, practical ways that you can do this. So uh, individual interventions like privacy enhancement tools or uh, uh, doing structured work on rest and so on. But we can also do this collectively. And it's really important that we do it collectively because that's how, you know, a societal response will have an impact on lots of individuals. An individual response will only have an impact on yourself. How would you respond to people who say you're just fighting against progress and this is the direction life is going in and we should embrace it? I mean, I, I, I don't think that's what we're seeing at all. Um, 
we're not you know we're 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 absolutely not against the use of technology um we get utility and joy from using digital devices as much as anybody else um but what we're arguing for is designing and deploying technologies that work in the favor of citizens um technologies that aren't overdetermined by the interests of companies and states um technologies that provide people with time and data sovereignty so there's some level of control over um, how these technologies are going to be enmeshed in our lives. And I think slow computing is, is about people just trying to take back some of this control in the face of what companies and states are doing. Um, you know, in response to you know what we find, we find these technologies tiring and we find them terrifying. And we're trying to imagine and trying to provoke a discussion about how they could be remade in a way. I mean, what I want is, a, if you like, planetary digital system that's used in the first place to facilitate cooperation and solve problems. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the mantra that the digital tech firms know best, um, what that says is that everybody else should just sit back and do nothing. But, you know, you have to recognize that, that where we are right now in terms of the technologies that we have, the devices that we use, the apps that we're using, the technology companies didn't do that on their own. They did that in collaboration with us. We are the ones who... You know, we we are the ones who swipe down or who really jumped after the double tick on WhatsApp. We're the ones who set, sent photos and shared, shared photos on the cloud. In, in a sense, we have informed the tech companies and let them work out what products they're going to develop. So yeah. the idea that we should just trust the firms is, is, is kind of it's, 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 it's kind of mad. It's madness on the one hand, but it's also just a, a, it's to ignore what's actually happened. It's, it's this back and forth between companies and, and, and tech users, if you like. Um, and, you know, I think we'll have to recognize that we have amazing technologies um, that we can use to make life work better for us. Um, open source operating systems or open source technologies are often free, they're easy, they're stable, um, they're smart, they work fine. Um, should we just say that none of that software should be written and that all that talent that's in society should just be wasted. I, I, don't, I don't think so. I think that's as we try and work towards a better society, we have to work towards a better digital society at the same time. Yeah. You've written a coda to the book. It's called Slow Computing During a Pandemic. It's actually available to read free on our website. So we'll put a link in the copy that goes along with this. But in that, you say the scope for pursuing slow computing is now in question like never before. What impact do you think COVID-19 will have on our digital lives in the long term? We mentioned um, surveillance and things like that earlier, the track and trace, but I just wondered if there was anything else. The, the, key, the key question is, is to what extent has this accelerated things like, uh, you know, m- moving to more digital life in terms of our entertainment, our social life, our shopping and consumption, um, uh, you know, how we how we live our home lives and our work lives and so on, to what extent has this technology become more embedded into the ways of which we we work and workplace surveillance? To what extent is, is it changing kind of governance and how people manage uh, their behavior and their, their ability to move around cities or move around places um, uh, and so on? So, you know, uh, it's 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 the extent to which this technology becomes normalized and a routine part of every of everyday life so yeah. we've been pushing back against kind of surveillance capitalism and you know trying to get more regulation around that and so on 
And, and effectively, what COVID has done is almost kind of given state sanction to the surveillance capitalism. You know, the, yeah. the state gone to these companies and said, look, we know you're collecting all of this data. We know we were trying to regulate you about it before, but let's forget about that. Can you give us that data back? Can you give us analytics on that data to tell us what's going on? You know, so they they basically sanctioned uh, those the, the, the use of those kinds of technologies because the data has been useful for them in relation to public health. And that's created more new market opportunities for those companies. It's also provided a gateway into public sector data for those companies. Mm. It's it's enrolled more people into the shadow because people into data shadows because people needed you know some people needed to go and get a phone to be able to um, uh, to be able to do the track and trace. Like uh, certainly, if I wanted to use track and trace, I'd have to up to date the phone I'm using at the minute. My my phone doesn't support uh, the track and trace app. Okay. Uh, in some in some countries, they actually issued phones to people who didn't have phones, so mm. they could hold into the system. So in Taiwan, they did that, for example. Okay. Um, and then as a kind of a COVID washing, what you might call COVID washing of some of this tech. So this tech that we, that a lot of people saw as quite problematic, and why we why we moved to things like GDPR, kind of gets legitimised as a way of uh, of monitoring people. And companies can then kind of COVID wash their activity and say, well, yeah. it's actually interested. So it's in the interest of public health that we monitor all your movement and uh, and uh, whether you're socially distanced or whether you're quarantining or whether you're uh, uh, you, you, you're traveling as you're permitted to travel uh, and so on. Yeah. And, uh, and where, where you see how. Uh, how this has been viewed long term by the market is the share price value of these companies has gone up and through the roof. And so you, we've all heard about, you know, uh, the CEOs of Amazon and Facebook and Google and so on. Or you know, their 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 wealth has massively increased uh, during during the crisis, and that's because, um, you know, that basically the, the the price of shares in those companies has skyrocketed because people think that they'll become so embedded in society that they're um, that they you know they they've gained a lot more value and that they and they won't necessarily be rolled back uh, afterwards. No, no. Um, so as we've said in the final chapter of the book, you provide some really really useful lists um, of practical things we can do to take back control of our time and data. Around things like downshifting, seeking anonymity, overcoming obstacles to slow computing, and we've talked about quite a lot of those things in this podcast. So to finish up, it would be great um, to hear three top tips from you guys to begin a slow computing life. Oh, my my number one tip, Jess, is that you should have two phones, and one of them, only one of them, should have WhatsApp, and that phone should never leave your house. Um, the WhatsApp phone should never leave your hand. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so you're, it's never with you. It's never with you. It should be uh, tethered to your home and uh, yeah. keep it on airplane mode and uh, only switch it on maybe twice a day or something like that. Um, but obviously that's not always possible. Sometimes you you just get caught up in these WhatsApp uh, sessions, I think you could call it. Um, yeah. But I'd rather get caught up in the WhatsApp session and, uh, than have it with me all the time because it's it is nonstop. It's ping, 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 and um, it's uh, hard and, to and switch off from it as well. So I notice that when addictive. 
when I'm reading, even when I was reading your book, I kept picking my phone up and I was really aware of it as I was reading Slow Computing because it's just so silly, really. But you can't stop yourself doing it. Yeah, I, I think I think WhatsApp's a terrible, terrible thing. <laughs> it is, isn't it? Yeah. My second tip would be to learn how to install and use an open source operating system like you know uh, Ubuntu is is the one that I use and. It's uh, my my parents are in their seventies and their desktop computer has Ubuntu, and ever since they've been on it, they've just loved it rather than the old Windows machine that they had, which was always updating and was essentially organising their life around uh, the needs of Facebook or the needs of Microsoft rather than them. Mm-hmm. Um, and since I've learned to use uh, open source software just like that, the operating system. Um, it's just a really good option to have in the house. And I'll give you a nice example of that on this laptop, which is my work laptop. I have a program called Panopto, um, which is used for screen capturing of uh, uh, um, of lectures. Mm-hmm. And But on this Windows machine, my Sky Go app will not work because Sky Go is allowed by Microsoft to identify if Panopto is installed. Now, it's got none of Sky's business as to whether I've got Panopto on my laptop, quite frankly. Um, but they're allowed to survey me like this um, in a way that, that, that wouldn't be permitted in an open source operating system. Yeah. So I, I think a, a good move for slow computing is for, for us to start doing that. More of us should be using this free, collectively produced, open source operating system rather than these, you know, uh, little pr- uh, these little private boxes that are Windows machines or so on. Yeah. There's open source messaging apps as well, isn't there? Like um, yeah. Telegram and Signal and things like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. And then the th- the, my third my third uh, t- trick would be just learn how to install and to use Tor browser. The thing about Tor browser is it just uh, anonymizes your browsing activities, um, and that's just a little way of putting a little bit of a spanner in the works for the companies that are trying to. Uh, analyze the web and trying to track out uh, track us and understand us and profile us yeah using tor browser is just a nice little technique that's going to have an impact isn't it if enough if things move in that direction and enough of us start doing it um rob rob did you have any tips before we wrap up Uh, my three really uh uh, the first one is a practice structured rest and work so it is kind of moving more towards clock time away from network time um, I, I mean, I do this all. I, I, this is the way that I try to work. So I, I try to have a very structured day. So mm-hmm. I, I try not to work in the evenings. I try not to work in the weekends. I try to block time when I'm working. So I'm not flitting between lots of different things. I'm, I'm, um, uh, I'm making sure I have rest. So I make sure I have my coffee break in the morning. I make sure I have an hour for lunch. I make sure I have a break in the afternoon less important for going away and recharging and whatever, rather than working all the way through and just getting exhausted and so on. So, so it's about just being kind of sensible about managing time and trying to push back against some of this fragmentation and time stresses and anxiety that goes with that. I think um, the move to working from home has made that even more important as well, hasn't it? Things do get a lot more mixed up. Yeah, and if you're working at home, it can be useful if you can get a space that, so I'm I'm using the spare bedroom as my workspace, and, uh, you know, and I basically only use it for work, and so it's a kind of a, uh, I'm not mixed, you know, so kind of 
in the same way I'm boxing off uh, work and rest, I'm boxing off space. Physical yeah. space, yeah. Space to a certain degree. Um, and again, that's very difficult for lots of different people because yeah, I can't of do that. different circumstance. Yeah, so I just can't do that. So it, it just depends on, you know, I just I just happen to have a spare room, so that makes life a bit um, yeah. yeah. Um, my second thing is around being uh, curating what you share online okay. and think about what you're sharing online in terms of photos, in terms of um, past history and views and comments and uh, and so on. And, uh, and thinking about, you know, I don't do any of these like Facebook quizzes or online quizzes. Yeah. And, that are often they're often about getting you to give um, information that's useful for profiling you, but actually also for stealing your identity. You know, so you know quizzes that ask you what your uh, first dog's name is or the street you live on. They're often security questions for mm. websites and so on. Yeah, yeah. So it's just thinking a bit about. So one way I think about this is if if. If I'm uncomfortable shouting this out on a main street, <laughs> yeah. I'll really shout out into Facebook. Yeah, that's a great you know, way of thinking about it. Just thinking a bit about that. So I <laughs> and I do it different across different platforms. So Facebook I use for personal stuff and I don't really do work stuff. Twitter I only use for work and I don't put anything personal on there. Mm. So I I think I kind of can't compartmentalize a bit across different platforms and i think linked to that in a way is actually thinking about whether you want the technology or really need the technology do you really need a coffee maker that's online do you really need a fridge that's online do you really need a washing machine that is do you really need a smart tv do you really need you know are these things that are are you just providing a data stream for people? Like, I mean, is there really a need for your washing machine to be communicating your washing habits back to the manufacturer? At pretty much every household appliance these days, uh, you can you can link up to the internet in some way. And in some right, sense, yeah. it's useful. So they, I don't know. I know I know somebody who has one of these online uh, um, uh, coffee things, I think it is. And you, you can, for like 10 minutes from home, you can tell it to start making the coffee. Yeah, you know. To, or, to or be you, honest, or, that's 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 pretty clever. Yeah, I, I want one of them. <laughs> <laughs> or, or, uh, or probably yeah. unnecessary though. So, so I know somebody who controls their heating system from their office. So they they control in their home heating system, so they can turn it on and off, and they can change the heat settings, and they can, you know, so when they go home, it's as they want it, and um, you know, so they're doing that. You're Whereas, telling them everything about your daily routines, though, aren't they, and how you live your life? And, yeah. yeah. Not interested in that in the slightest. I'm, I'm not interested in. I like. I don't need my fridge to be a digital online IoT fridge. I, I know what's in my fridge. <laughs> I yeah. know it's milk. I don't need the fridge to tell me I'm out of milk. I don't need the fridge to give me recommendations of recipes of with what items are left in the fridge. No. You know, I don't, I don't, you know, uh, and now some people like lots of gizmos and gadgets and they like all of that kind of stuff, but they have to realize there is a data penalty or price for that. Um, and some people are willing to live with that, right? They're willing to trade convenience or, or what they see as the benefit from the good for their privacy. They're willing to make that trade. 
just remembering that it's it is a trade that's the important thing isn't it yeah and that data could come back to mm. them in a way that might affect you know um uh how a data broker then treats them in relation to credit or a loan or a job or yeah. whatever it might be that, that you know we we don't know how this data is really being used in relation to us so i think i think just thinking a bit about whether you want uh the, whether the tech is actually going to deliver what you really think but mm -hmm. like, is alexa in your room listening to everything you say really in your interest yeah um, i've got one behind me here but it has to listen to everything you say to know yeah. what you're giving it yeah so, you know, Hi Alexa. 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 I'm feeling very uncomfortable now. <laughs> it doesn't selectively listen to you. It, no. You know. Um, and then there is the question of like, if I was like, your Alexa can now hear me and Alistair as well, so we're being captured by your device. Yeah, you are on headphones, so you are safe at uh, the moment. But yeah, in theory, definitely. Yeah, you know. So there is this thing about other people coming in your home and then them being enrolled into your kind yeah. of system you know yeah and um, it's easy to make light of it i think and laugh at it but it's huge it's so invasive and does have these massive implications well yeah. it's, it's interesting that i mean normally when somebody phones you and you put them on speaker it's polite to say to them you're on speakerphone yeah but i think if somebody phones you and you've got alexa in the room it is polite to say to them alexa is here yeah blimey yeah yeah um, Rob, your third tip. Uh, it was uh, use privacy enhancement tools. Right. Yeah. Uh, like using like Facebook container uh, in, in a browser that would, you know, so basically stops Facebook trace, tracing you across all your other tabs or windows. Okay. Um, it's about, you know, things like privacy badger, which blocks trackers and cookies and whatever else. It's like using HTTPS everywhere. Brave, brave browser on your smartphone is a good one. It just blocks all ads. We're using Firefox as an open source. Um, it's just about um, uh, kind of managing um, how some of this data, because a lot of data is extracted by third parties in the background. Yeah. If you if you're using Firefox and you can install uh, an app called Lightbeam, and it actually shows you all of the all of the other websites that are collecting information. So you might have only visited 10 websites. When you open Lightbeam, you'll see there's like 100 different companies have been collecting data out of your visits to those websites. Wow. Um, so it's about maybe, you know, installing things that block those kinds of traces um, going across. And in the book, we name a, a number of them that you can kind of install uh, and use. And it's a, again, it's just about... Uh, you don't you don't fully stop all of this data flowing off, but you you can kind of block bits of it and manage. Yeah. But using a VPN would be another another way of doing that um, to a certain degree. So it's you know, and and using the Tor browser will do the same thing that Alastair was saying. So it's just it's just about little interventions that that don't cost a lot of time to install those, but can have some effect. Yeah, the book is really helpful. You do lay this out quite clearly in the book and give lots of suggestions. So, um, yeah, that's really good. Yeah, um, the key, key thing is you don't have to do all of them. The key thing is to work out which of these things will work best for you. 
and and not to try and do everything. No. Like we're, we're not trying to kill the joy of doing computing. Like as Alice said, like we we get a lot of benefit at computing. You know, whether that's playing games or whether it's uh, how we do our work or whether it's uh, you know how we buy things or our entertainment or whatever it is. Right. So you know we we. You know, and it, it does a lot of useful things for us. Like digital tech does a lot of useful things. It's just about managing that and um, and just trying to find things that work for you individually and maybe helping collectively uh, push back us about certain things, but not but not killing the joy of it. Yeah, that's a great note to leave it on. Um, it's been very eye opening. Uh, thank you very much for speaking to me. Um, Slow Computing, Why We Need Balanced Digital Lives by Rob Kitchen and Alistair Fraser. It's published by Bristol University Press. You can find out more on our website, which is bristoluniversitypress.co.uk.